Praise God. <coughs> I want to open up in prayer real quick. <coughs> Father God, we just thank you right now. We thank you for this gathering, Lord. We thank you for this moment. God, I come to the throne of grace boldly to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Father, I thank you, Lord, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have been given access. We've been given access, O oh Lord, to this grace wherein we stand. So, God, in this moment, Father, I pray that uh, my prayer would ascend to you like incense and the lifting up of my hands be as the evening sacrifice. Father, I pray, Lord, that it would be a sweet aroma before the mercy seat. Father, I ask in Jesus' name that these prayers would ascend to you, Lord, like aroma, Lord, as incense before the mercy seat. And God, so would you accompany this word with your presence? Would you back, O oh God, the preaching of your word with the unction of the Holy Ghost? Would you back it, O oh God, I ask, with your presence, with your person? Father, I pray that you would cut to the, 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 uh, the root of every sin, the root of all of unbelief and doubt. and Would you chisel our character? Would you correct, instruct, and rebuke? Father, would you also encourage? Would you also uplift? Father, I pray that uh, as this teaching goes forward, Lord, that you would grant illumination, that you would grant, Father, inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that you would grant, O oh Lord, light, that your people, Lord, not, would not, as Hosea said, uh, uh, perish for the lack of knowledge. May there be an impartation of knowledge and revelation given by your blessed Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Father, may your Holy Spirit begin to, to impart understanding and revelation and expose the works of darkness, expose the works of the enemy, Begin to expose every lie that he has promulgated in our lives in order to destruct, in order to derail, in order to uh, uh, cause discombobulation and discouragement and dismay and despair. Father, I pray right now that through uh, the, the going forth of your word that it would not return void. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. In Jesus' mighty name, I pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Bring forth your will. Bring forth your will. Open doors, Lord. Open doors and grant provision of strength and grace, whereby we may walk into the things freely given to us by you, O God. In Jesus' name, close every single door that is not from you. Close every single door that the devil would seek to open in our lives that would, that would lead us away from the Christ. Hallelujah. Father, grant me right now power from on high that they would know, O oh Lord, that you have spoken. As Richard Baxter said, preach as a dying man to dying men as if I can never preach again. Father, may they not dodge your word. Hallelujah. May our hearts be open and vulnerable and transparent before the one to whom we must give an account. In the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. <coughs> 
Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, O Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. <coughs> we don't pray, we don't stay. If we're not praying, we're strained. Uh, th that is the, um, you know, I recall Ravenhill once said that the, sec uh, this, uh, the secret of the Christian life is to pray in secret. That really is the the um, the secret of the Christian life is to pray in secret. Amen. The reason why is because prayers is the means to the end, and and the end is God Himself, and we want God. Uh, as Malachi says, "It is the Lord whom ye seek." We need to seek God. More than the things from God, we need to seek God. Amen. We need to have the heart like David. He says, this is one thing that I seek, that, uh, that I may uh, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to inquire um, in his temple and to gaze upon his beauty. We're, we're gazing upon many other things other than the Lord himself. And we need to get our eyes, as, as the writer of Hebrews states, fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. Not getting our eyes fixed on the storm, not getting our eyes fixed on um, um, things that have happened before in, in the past, uh, or things that even uh, so-called people... Uh, who, who proclaim the name of God or who are supposed to represent the name of God have done in the name of God. We need to get our eyes fixed on Christ, uh, not fallible human beings, not situations, not uh, current events, not the news. Not I'm not saying be oblivious. I'm not saying be ignorant of these things. But ultimately, our eyes speak of that which we hope for, um, the things which we long for and look for with great expectation. Amen. What does it say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8? Uh, whatever is noble, whatever is good report of, is there anything admirable and, and praiseworthy and lovely? Think on these things. Amen. Don't think about things that are going to puncture your faith, that is going to puncture holes and to dismantle your faith. Amen. We, we need uh, our faith to be... Uh, uh, undergirded and to build to build up amen see it, it, we can't expect to build up faith being lazy christians uh what i mean by that is you you can't expect to be passive in this walk and think that you're going to acclimate greater uh, degrees of faith having done nothing and willing to do nothing it takes a contribution it takes a construction it takes effort it takes a laborious work and intention and effort in order to uh, build up your face to where you're no longer overcome nor bogged down by worry by anxiety amen it's a process 
Faith isn't one of those things that you can muster up and say, I will to believe. I'm going to believe right now in this moment. Right? And, and, and by the snap of a finger. That's not how faith works. Faith is a muscle. And you develop it by growing it. By, by, by applying pressure. Have you ever noticed? I don't know if you've ever worked out before. But in order to uh, acquire greater uh, muscular development... You have to, uh, there's resistance. There, the, weight is resistance. That's what that is. It's, it's weight. And it's, it's working against the movement, working against the, the movement of, of whatever uh, uh, part of your body that you're working out. You're moving, let's say you're working out on your biceps and you're moving the, uh, uh, you know, the weight upward, well, the weight wants to go downward. You're working against gravity, are you not? So, similarly, if you're wanting to move forward by faith, be, expect to be met with resistance. Right? Amen, exactly. That, yeah, that muscle contracts and you know tears and then the muscle repairs itself and it's that repairing that the it's it's uh, the muscle increases in strength and and in size right we, we can't uh, sit on our lazy boy chair and expect uh, for um, us to advance in our walk with the Lord Y'all can say amen to that. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so, um, with that said, I want us to get into Romans. <clears throat> I want us to get into Romans chapter 5. But, but but here's the thing: Christians are often bewildered that they're inundated with so much doubt and and unbelief and discouragement, and yet they don't pray, they don't get in their word, and and let me say this controversial one: they don't have the word preached to them. Um, see, God has ordained the preaching of His word and your your submission thereto. You're submitting under, you're sitting under the preaching of the word. Um, you know, I was just speaking with someone recently, and uh, they mentioned an individual that um, actually has been in the faith for some time now, but doesn't have anybody in their life. Uh, and that's a dangerous thing. Um, see, when we speak of leadership... See, a leader is someone that is ahead of you. Uh, I forget which, uh, I believe it's in the Kings, uh, but uh, the Lord speaks of uh, one of the prophets and says, um, uh, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, listen to uh, my, uh, the prophet uh, who, is bef who will go before you or who is before you. 
you, you don't want to follow someone that isn't before you, but is behind you. You don't want to listen to someone like that. Is that understood? See, this is what has gotten the church into some dangerous ground, is that we assume equality. As, you know, I know not everybody here is, are Americans, but Americans, we love, and I do too, uh, equal rights, right? We love equal rights, um, and, and we parade equal rights, and I, I do. Hey, hoorah, you know, uh, but the, the fact and point is that as much as we love equal rights, there, there is not equal position. Just because you're a citizen of the United States don't mean that you're an ambassador of the United States. And even if you are an ambassador of the United States, even it, let's suppose you enter into that office, it doesn't mean that you're of equal rank or, or stature as one who has been in uh, that office uh, 20 years more than you. And, and here's the thing is if you allow insecurity or inferiority to get in the way to 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 dominate your um, your decision making, you will allow someone that is more seasoned than you and before you uh, uh, to to you will hinder whatever is behind that individual and in that individual and on them. Does that make sense? Um. But the, and I want I want this to be ingrained within us because I, you don't accept that way of thinking anywhere else. You don't accept it in politics. You don't accept it in law enforcement. You don't accept it within uh, 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 the medical practice. You, we don't accept it anywhere else in life. We don't accept it in your own home. But for some reason, we're under the notion that it is 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 not only merely acceptable. Uh, but something that is to be somehow paraded within the house of God. Does that make sense? And this is why, and this is the last thing I'll say, and we'll get to the text. This is why I said in, in my, um, in, and this is by no means to be insulting. This is by no means to be insulting. Um, so I, I want to preface by saying that. But this is why I said on, on my stories, I said, please, for your own benefit, Stop treating 18-year-olds as social media influencers as if they're an authority in faith and theology. Come on, somebody. Would you allow an 18-year-old to lead your home? And, and, and I understand that some 18-year-olds are exceptionally wise for their age. But just because you are mature relatively don't mean that you are mature objectively. You, relative to people your age, you may be mature. Hey, I don't insult your relative maturity. But comparative to, to the whole, you, you are still immature. And immature it isn't an insult. It may be. For example, if you're 40 years old and you're still immature. But if you're 18, 19 years old and you're still immature, the word mature, in uh, according to the Bible in the Greek, comes from the word telos. And it means to come to its expected end. 
So in other words, you haven't come to your expected end. You haven't come expected in physically. You're still developing. Uh, 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 some people are still getting hair on their chin, right? Uh, uh, your, your body hasn't fully developed. Your brain hasn't fully developed. And so why is it? And now, again, I'm, I'm saying this not to be insulting because we've all been there. We've all been 18 if we're older th- than 18. But it's just a sad tragedy in my opinion that we are giving uh, 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 an allowance for uh, th- th- these people that uh, are, are so young in the faith who, who don't know this, who haven't even read this all the way through to lead you. They're not prominent nor authoritative voices in Christendom. Okay? They might say some cool things. Um, but it says this in the text. It says, if it, it, concerning the office of a minister, it says, if they cannot lead their own house, how can they lead the household of God? So if you're of a particular age in which you don't even have your own home, how can you lead God's home? It says this in 1 Timothy. It takes, it, it, you, it, you have to earn the right to speak. And it doesn't mean that you have to muzzle your mouth and you can't say anything. But don't pretend to be an individual who is leading the people of God through, through theology, through the word of the Lord. You have to be tested. You have to be tried. About, we, we can't go against this text here. It says in 1 Timothy that after they are tried and tested, then they may assume that office. So my question to a lot of the people out here today, who's testing them? Who's examining them? Who have they submitted unto them, under them? Who who has laid hands on them? Who who's done these things for them? They haven't. And there are some that have. There are some that just res, presume, presumptuously, with the sense of entitlement that they can do all that. And as a consequence of that, we are led into um, abuses in the church. We're led to uh, people who are manipulators in the church, end up controlling the church end up promulgating false doctrine in the church. And even if you are sound and, and, and orthodox in your doctrine, in practice you may um, commit malpractice and, and commit some atrocities in the church because you're underdeveloped. Does that make sense? Okay. So, with that said... Let's turn now to Romans. And that's not to discourage the younger generation. Okay, That's not to insult them. But it's to say you have to submit to the process that God has. Amen. David was anointed king, but he didn't step in that kingship right away. See, people want to already jump to uh, uh, being king over Israel, but they don't want to attend a sheep and pick up their dung. Right? Where did you think David acquired the passion to lead the people of God? If you can't, if you can't uh, attend sheep, you can't tend people. 
So don't try to jump that process. Right? So, <clears throat> Romans chapter 5, verse 1. I, I want to I actually, this is very fundamental and elementary um, today that I hope to be speaking about, but only in order to uh, remind us of the, the gospel. Um, you know, a lot of times people say that uh, with sincere motives, they say that the gospel is the meat. May I submit to you, that's the milk. Uh, I, I know you don't believe that. So let me, let me before we go to Romans real quick, let me show you in Hebrews. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1. Therefore let us move beyond the elementary teachings. The what? I don't know what it what it's referred to in, in in your country, but here in America, elementary school is from first to sixth grade. So you're learning basic arithmetic, you're learning basic grammar, right? Anybody attest to that? Um, so elementary is the fundamentals. It's the what what let's call it milk about Christ. So there are elementary teachings about Christ. So that's suggestive of the fact that there are advanced teachings in Christ. Right? If there are elementary teachings within school, then that is suggestive of the fact that there are advanced and mature teachings in school. It says, and be taken forward to maturity. So that means if we're stuck on elementary teachings, then we are not, we have not yet acquired maturity. Right? But that is the end goal. First, the elementary and fundamental teachings that need to be laid in order for you to master them and be mastered by them so that you can progress towards maturity. It says, not laying again the foundation of repentance. Wow, so repentance is milk. A lot to, I've seen it so many times. People are like, oh, praise God. Look at that street preacher. He's preaching that milk, uh, that meat of repentance. I'm sorry to say, but uh, repentance is milk. People say we need to repent daily. I don't know what how you're living. Why do you need to repent daily? I don't repent daily. When I was an, I was a, a babe, I repented daily. <laughs> right? And, and by the way. See right now, you're you're having mental deconstructions because you've been told that this is customary of the Christian life to repent daily. I I I would I would submit to you that you can't find that in the scriptures. Now you might have certain passages in your mind that you think of that may apply to that. Um. But I would challenge you and say that that's not in fact the case. Uh, the, repentance comes from the Greek word metanoia. It doesn't even mean a change of conduct. It, a change of conduct is implied from it, but metanoia means I change my mind. 
And, and our mind shouldn't be changing every single day. If our mind is changing every single day, then there's... Right, right. What's up with that? Our mind should have been changed by the word of the Lord. See, see, repent, change of mind. And I'm not saying that your mind doesn't change, right? But, but typically we, we associate repentance with, uh, uh, being convicted of my sin. That's what we associate it with. And that's not necessarily what the Bible means by repentance. Um, that is one form of, of repentance. But uh, the, the word metanoia is also used in, in uh, passages in the scriptures where it's not even associated with sin. It's someone that just changed their mind about uh, what they decided to do. Um, but nonetheless, uh, this, this whole schizophrenic way of living, uh, I'm changing my mind. You know, I don't know who I am. I'm convicted all the time and I'm changing my mind all the time. No, that the Bible speaks of a single mind. Right? And and the more we grow, the less our mind is changing. Because we have allowed the Word of God to shape and morph our understanding, our mentality, our outlook, our perspective, our way of life. But nonetheless, it says, uh, from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instructions about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So we find uh, the elements there that the writer of Hebrew uh, considers uh, elementary teachings. Right? So what, what's included with the resurrection? And undoubtedly, if there's a, if there's a resurrection, the crucifixion is implied. Because you not you cannot have a resurrection if you do not first have a crucifixion. So crucifixion, i.e. the cross, is an elementary teaching of the doctrine of Christ. So you know how you have all those old school preachers, I'm preaching on the cross. <laughs> and, and and undoubtedly that is not to minimize our appreciation for the cross. In fact, there is no New Testament without it. We never stop cherishing what Christ did for us on the cross. But the point, though, is sometimes people, Christians, live as if Christ did not rise from the dead. Because they're stuck in the Calvary mentality because they're so acquainted with their sin and sinning that they can't move beyond uh, needing to uh, uh, receive once again atonement for their sin. Right? Because they, they're so sin conscious. We are not to live sin conscious. You know, a lot of times, you know, I've had people say, oh, you, you preach sinless perfection. I don't... See, people who do that are so insecure and inf feel inferior and because they're sin conscious. When you speak of victory in Christ and holiness in Christ, uh, uh, not by our own efforts, the first thing they say, well, did you do you sin? That's because they're so sin conscious. They can't even imagine someone living above reproach. 
and then they go to Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, have sinned, that's past tense, and in context, that's Romans 3, and Paul is talking about those who are under the law, and he immediately says after verse 23, for we know that whatsoever things the law, the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. But guess what? We're not under the law, we are under grace. So your identity is no longer sinner. Now, you know, sometimes it's so hard for me to actually read the text. <coughs> but um, that is to say that the cross is the, in, is the elementary teachings of Christ. But I hope to go there this day as as way of reminder. Um, the, the cross is the euangelios. That's the Greek word for good news. That's That's what that means. Okay. So let's begin reading uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through, uh, We'll stop right there. Well, first of all, um, I've said this before, and it may be get, get annoying at this point, but it's just um, hopefully it ingrains within you so you better understand how to read the text. But whenever you see the transitionary word therefore there, you must ask why it's therefore. Right? That's what we that's what we largely don't do today in, in Christendom is we don't stop uh, to ask very basic questions and why is that word therefore? Okay, well why is the word therefore? Therefore. It's there because uh, it's connecting what is going to be said with what was said previously. Right? Well, what was said previously? I don't have time to go into all of the details, but simply put, all that was said previously was Romans chapter 1 through Romans chapter 5. Okay? So what was said? And if we aren't well acquainted with our Bibles... Um, uh, let me briefly explain to you Romans chapter 1 Paul speaks about the condemnation that was upon um, the Jews particularly the priesthood a lot of people don't understand that Romans chapter 1 is actually speaking about the Levitical priesthood the Bible says that they held the truth in unrighteousness that same terminology is also used in 2 Corinthians when Paul says, We who have been given the ministry of the Spirit, the New Testament, the New Covenant, the Word of the Lord, he says, We don't hold the Word in unrighteousness. So those who held the Word were those who held the covenant to administer that covenant and instruct the people. So Romans 1 speaks about those who held the truth in unrighteousness for what was plain to them about God was clearly seen since the creation of the world. I I'm not going to unpack that, but it's not talking about the creation of the whole globe. A lot of people think that's what it's talking about. It's talking about the creation of the Jewish world, which implied the tabernacle, uh, or the temple, the priesthood, and God's invisible attributes were clearly seen through what was created. In Hebrews, I think it's chapter five, 8 or chapter 9, verse 5, 
it says that Moses was shown on the mount uh, uh, to, to give to the people. And it says, build according to the pattern that you've seen in heaven. So there was a pattern in heaven that was shown Moses that he was to demonstrate on earth. That's why when they looked at the tabernacle, they looked at the, the altar, they looked at these things, the invisible attributes of God were clearly seen through what was created. But um, there's so much more that can be said about that, but I'm continuing forward. Romans chapter 2 speaks about the condemnation that was upon the Greeks, or pagans, the unbelievers, right? And then Romans 3 talks about, Romans 3 and 4 speaks about how we cannot be justified through the law. Let me quickly read a, a, a verse from uh, Romans chapter 4. Um, and then we will move on to chapter 5. But I'm just setting some groundwork here. Are you all following? <coughs> Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5 also speaks about uh, Abraham as the archetype of, 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 uh, of faith, the, the father of faith. And that Abraham, as, as you well know, was not under the law. Uh, the law did not come until the time of Moses, and the life of Moses was well after the time of Abraham. And yet, the argument that Paul is making here in Romans is that Abraham was justified, I believe it's in the 17th chapter of Genesis, where um, Abraham... Uh, was justified before God. Uh, and so now, if Abraham was justified before God, before the law, then that means that it wasn't the law that justified Abraham. If Abraham, through faith, was justified before the administering of the law, which came through Moses, then that means that Abraham was not justified from the law or the works of it. And that's Paul's whole argument here. It says that he believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness. Okay? Um, Romans chapter 5, uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 4. Verse 13, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. So, we, we learn right here that it is through the law that wrath comes. Right. In fact, if you look in Romans chapter 3, and I quoted this earlier, the law doesn't make one righteous. In fact, the intention of the law given by God was so that the, the mouths, uh, every mouth would uh, be stopped and silenced from boasting in themselves. The purpose was so that it would reflect our inability and our, our inherent sinfulness and our, our, our incapability of, of satisfying the, the demands of God's just law by ourselves. 
So this is what it says now, uh, verse 19 in Romans 3. We Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather through the law we become conscious of our sin. So the law brings consciousness of sin and it brings wrath. Right? Because any violation of that same law, right, it, it, it brings wrath, and, and the wrath is death, right? It says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Is that in your Bibles? Amen. So now what I'm not what, what I'm not advocating for is what's called antinomianism. Antinomianism. Anti means against, namas means law. Uh, there's a philosophy out there that is, is is against law. No, because Jesus has commands. He has things for us to obey. But the 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 thing is it's not that through our obedience that we are saved. It's rather that we are saved and therefore obey. That's, that's the huge difference. See, when the Israelites were led out of the bondage of Egypt, the, they were first delivered. Then Moses was told, uh, Moses told Pharaoh, let God's people go so that we may worship. So first is deliverance, then is worship. Then after worship is the institution of the law. Deliverance, worship, or thanksgiving unto God for that deliverance, and then obedience. It's not obedience to get delivered. It's delivered to obey. Amen? <clears throat> but coming back to Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, Okay, so the therefore is there for this purpose and is to connect what was said previously from Romans chapter 1 through 5 to now lead us to verse 1 in chapter 5. Right? It's a connect transitionary word to connect us with the previous thought with the thought that will be made uh, after. And the, the previous thought is that we cannot be justified by our good works. We cannot be justified nor saved nor delivered from all our good works. It, 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 we're not saved through karma. We aren't saved through, uh, uh, as Islam says, you know, our good deeds outweighing our bad deeds. Right? We aren't justified through that. We are justified by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, First of all, let, let, let me define what just justify means. Um, it comes from the word uh, dikaios in the Greek. I believe it's dikaios or dikaiosune. Um, and to justify means to declare innocent. To declare not guilty. Well... Um, isn't that an amazing thing to receive from God? 
that despite of all of your sins that you've ever committed, that God will be able to, in Christ, declare you innocent. And certainly it's not upon the basis of works, for if it was on the basis of works, we would emphatically, undoubtedly be declared guilty. Without question. And you don't even need God to tell you that. You don't even need the devil to tell you that. Your own conscience will attest to the fact that there is more than a case to be made that we are uh, certainly guilty before God. However, through Christ, God provides a way where He can look at you, He can look at myself, not on the basis of our good performance, to be able to justify you. In other words, to be able to look at you in Christ and say, not guilty. I hereby forensically and legally declare you innocent, not guilty. Hallelujah. In other words, you are without guilt. And guilt implies a, 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 a it, it implies a punitive punishment it implies a violation of against the law and therefore uh, uh, a necessity uh, to incur injury uh, by that law a retributive justice for violating that law and yet God in, in in his legal courtroom can declare you innocent amen y'all following? Now, what is the basis? If it's not through the law, it is through faith, right? Verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified, he doesn't say will be justified. So this isn't a future tense. The, the, the verb there is been justified, past tense. It's not a future tense thing that we are attempting to obtain. It's something that we have already obtained through Christ. So you have been justified through what works, through good performance, through uh, traveling to Mecca, (laughs) through uh, doing your I am's or through crystals or even through learning Hebrew through evangelizing more right no through faith it's as simple as that the word faith comes from the Greek word pistis. And it just means believe or fidelity. Um, So, now, but belief in what? And belief in who? Faith in what? Right? It says, we've been justified through faith. 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the object of our faith is Christ himself. And his, his meritorious act on the cross, his salvific work on the cross, his saving work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Let, real quickly, and let, me, let me show you that this is the case from Romans chapter 10. Um, uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 8 but what does it say the word is near you it is in your mouth and in your heart that is the message concerning faith that we proclaim so it's the message of faith and then Paul is going to give you the constituent elements of that message. Number one, in verse nine, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Okay, so, first of all, there's a declaration. Now that de declaration must come from a pure heart. It cannot, be, it cannot come from mere lip service. And, and the declaration that we make from the pure heart is to uh, confess that Christ is Lord. Now, I want you to understand the implications to this statement here. At this time, in Rome because this is entitled the book of Romans. So this is about the Roman church. And Paul mentions that in the first chapter. He says, to all who are called of God in Rome. He talks about his longing to see those in Rome and to impart to them some spiritual gift. Paul was ultimately called to Rome. I don't know if you knew this, but Paul wanted to stubbornly go to Jerusalem, even though he was prophet Agabus prophesied that he would be bound he wasn't supposed to go to Jerusalem but Paul had such a longing for the Jewish people that he went anyways and we know that he had such a longing for them because in Romans chapter 9 he says I wish myself that I could be accursed and even cut out from Christ so that I may be able to save my own kinsmen uh, and he talks about then also in Romans chapter 10 verse 1 but he was called by God why is he going to Jerusalem when he's called as an apostle to the Gentiles? Gentiles are in Jerusalem. You see how stubborn people can be? It, it, is they want to do things for God that God don't want them to do? And guess what? You end up getting bound and unnecessarily beat at, because of your decision for that. But nonetheless, Paul it, it is... Uh, called as an apostle to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And as an apostle to the Gentiles, he's speaking to those that are at Rome. And now at this time, Caesar, right, is the one in charge. And and what they had to confess was Caesar Curias. That is Greek to say Caesar is Lord. That was the confession that the Romans were to make. And it wasn't mere 
honor and it wasn't mere uh, uh, homage that they were to pay to Caesar. It was their worship. And so the implication of Paul's uh, writing here to say that their confession must be exclusively um, Ha Jesus Curias Jesus is Lord meant that Caesar could viably put them to death. Does that make sense? So when, when Paul is saying that our declaration must be Jesus is Lord, in effect, it could cost them their life. Now how could you demonstrate faith if nothing was on the line? It's not saying that i got to work harder or that I even have to offer my body as a martyr. I don't have to do all that to get saved. All I have to do is from a pure heart say, Jesus is Lord, I'm submitting and acquiescing to his government on my life. He is the true potentate. He is the true governor. He is the true Lord. He is greater than any prime minister. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I, I, I have to submit to that government. Amen. Even if it enrages Caesar, and let me say this because I feel this prophetically, even if it, in, it enrages your family, was it not Jesus says, Think not that I come to bring peace on earth, but I came to bring a sword, father against mother, you know, son against father. He says the enemies will be those of their own household. And he says, if you aren't willing to pick up your cross, and follow me, you are not worthy to be my disciple. So when we say that we're declaring Christ as Lord, we are uh, uh, undeniably and unquestionably accepting him as Lord and great governor over my life. He is the shot caller. He calls the shots. But he is first Savior before he is Lord to you. It's not that he is Lord to me and I must follow everything he says and then he will save me. No, he is first precious Savior to me. And out of love for all that he's done, I accept his Lordship in my life. And he's not a hard taskmaster. He doesn't whip you into obedience. He woos you into obedience. With his tender love. Hallelujah. <clears throat> but Caesar, he's a hard taskmaster. He hates you. The devil hates you. There's that song, There is no greater love. There is no greater love. No greater love, there is no greater love, there is no greater love. Hallelujah. Jesus went to Calvary, save a wretch like you and me, that's love. They hung him high, they stretched him wide, he hung their dead, for me he died, that's love. 
There is no greater love than a man who would lay down his life for a friend. But as we will read in Romans 5 verse 9, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Amen. So, um, what's implied here is that our confession of faith, our declaration of Christ being Lord, is not done in a vacuum. It, it, it's, it's done in the context of it costing us. Now, that cost may depend from individual to individual. It might mean your job. It might mean some close friendships. It might mean being viewed as a fanatic. And we're not into the business of comparing struggles and suffering. So what one individual suffers may not be what the next individual suffers. And just because you don't suffer as much as that individual doesn't make you less of a Christian. Does that make sense? But... That is the object of our faith, is the message of faith, and the author of it. Does that make sense? Y'all following? So, um, Romans 5, verse 1, it says, Through faith we have peace with God. That's the word erene in Greek. It's transliterated from the Hebrew word shalom. Um, peace doesn't just speak of an absence of war, but it speaks of complete restoration, harmony. The problem is that the law could not offer us peace through with God. And so it is through faith in the gospel message and in Christ and what he's done for us that is offering us peace with God. And I, I, I would have you know that peace is not this subjective peace that we feel. So a lot of the things that babies in Christ need to learn is just because you're not currently feeling the peace of God doesn't mean that you don't have peace with God. See, our peace with God is objective. It's based upon the objective work that Christ performed at Calvary and, and his resurrection from the dead and our faith in that. The peace and tranquility we feel through the Holy Ghost is a subjective peace that is a mere byproduct of our ultimate peace with God through the cross. So just because... So the, the, the peace that we have with God objectively through the work of Christ is stable, is fixed, is concrete, and it doesn't waver back and forth. So just because you may not be feeling peace today does not negate nor overrule the fact that you have peace with God. You may not be feeling the peace of God, but it doesn't mean that you don't have peace with God. Does that make sense? Amen. 
because that is going to be your ultimate anchor in times when the devil assails you, when the devil is troubling you, when uh, 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 trials come to test you, uh, when obstacles come to meet you, when family comes against you, is to know that even though I don't feel the peace of God right now, it doesn't uh, negate the fact that I have peace with God. Peace with God is not based upon how you feel. It's based upon what Christ has done. And, and you know, one of the things I've learned is sometimes the Lord hides his face, not out of punishment uh, 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 against you, but he hides his face in the feelings of peace and tranquility that he, that he gives by his spirit so that you may more greatly cherish the times that he does offer you that subjective peace. So he doesn't spoil you. Amen. That means, that, see, the way that you obtain peace with God is through the faith in the blood of Christ. The way that you obtain the peace, obtain the peace of God, not the peace with God, but peace of God, is what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Do not be anxious in anything, but in everything. By prayer and petition, present your request to God, and the peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So the, the instrument through which you obtain the peace of God is prayer, but the means through which you obtain peace with God is through Christ's blood. Does that make sense? <clears throat> so if you don't have the peace of the Lord right now, you, you, you need to probably pray a little more and stop being anxious over things until the peace of God meets you. And begins to guard your heart and your mind. Amen. Um, and one of the things too I had to learn as as a as a believer as a baby Christian, is that, see, when you're young in the Lord, real, real young, the Lord often meets you with peace. You know, I remember, you know, worshiping for a couple of minutes or praying for a couple of minutes and the peace of God would already come and His presence would just meet me and saturate me. But as I grew older, he suspended his peace for longer periods of time in order to cultivate in me the, the capacity to press in. And, and, and the times, because I remember every time I'd go to church, I'd get touched in such an amazing way like it was the first time. Now, as I'm mature of the Lord, that... Like when he touches me deep, 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 it's probably like every six months. <laughs> that don't happen every day. If he touches me real deep, like like he did at first, where I, like 
I just want to fall flat on my face and just cry like a woman in a, a, a drama show or something like that. <laughs> That's like every six months. Um, uh, but see, it's because I don't have to be reassured all the time like that. Does that make sense? You know, when I take my boy, are y'all following? Amen. Is it, is some of, some of you still in that baby phase? Um, you know, like my boy, when we go take, we, we, we take him to the park and sometimes we, we like going at night cause it's cooler. And, uh, you know, uh, me and my wife at one time at, uh, we, we pretend to hide from him and, and, and he would call, he, he would say, mommy, you know, and there's like a terror in his voice cause he, he doesn't know where his mom is at, right? He doesn't know. So but but do you do that now right at 30 years of age right if your mom didn't answer her phone call or, or you know your dad is like busy right do you need to hold their hand no so in other words it's valid for the time for a time but we need to grow right um, but it says peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God. So in other words, we're at harmony with God. <clears throat> that means there's an absence of war with God. Not just your war towards God, but God's war towards you. Did you, did you know that? Like, God fights against people. <clears throat> he resists people. <clears throat> it's, it's biblical. Did God fight against Pharaoh? Yes, he did. Did he fight against Herod? Yes, he did. Did he fight against Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes, he did. Um... Does it mean that God hates them? That's kind of a tricky question. And I'm not, I don't intend on going in that. Uh, that's a very complex question there because the Bible does say that God hates certain people. So he hated Esau. Um, God hates the hands of those that shed innocent blood. But just put that on a shelf right now because I don't want to go down that road. Um, but. But we have peace with God. The Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us? So there's certain people, and it's only in Christ that God is for you. Did you know that? Because wherever Christ is not, the wrath of God is. Amen? Wherever Christ is not, the wrath of God is. This is why the Israelites needed to put blood on their doorpost. Because if not, the angel of death would bring the wrath of God on their household. So does that not make us it thankful that the blood of Christ is upon our doorposts? Because having been in Christ, all the benevolent 
and tender blessings of the Father are lavished upon us through Christ. Amen? Not His wrath. But it says, uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So, it is through Christ we have gained access. It is through faith that we connect to Christ and it is through Christ that we obtain access and access to what? Access to grace. The grace in the Greek is the word charis and it means, uh, it can mean charity, gift, right? Grace. Well, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is the gift of God. And we access that gift, that charis, that gift, that grace, through Jesus Christ. Right? Uh, So it's not something we work for. If we work for something, we receive wages. But we don't work for this, therefore we receive a gift. This is why it says in Ephesians chapter 2, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest any man should boast. And it says, and we, and it says, in this grace in which we now stand. So there's three postures that in the Christian walk. There is sitting, there is standing, there is walking. Our walk in the Lord represents our conduct. This is why it says in uh, Psalm chapter 1, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. So walking speaks with respect to our conduct, our behavior, how we are living. Seating with Christ in heavenly places is, is indicative and representative of our rest in Him. And our standing represents our confident posture and what has been made available to us. It's our confident posture and stance and status in God. We stand firm. The opposite of standing is falling. So those who believe not the report of the Lord are those who, according to 1 Peter, stumble. Right? The, the, the builders, it says the chief cornerstone was rejected by its builder and stumbled over that stumbling block. So in other words, they are fallen. There are those who don't obey the word. But we, on the other hand, stand right in grace. Does that make sense? So it says, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. Now, I don't intend on going into this, but in Romans chapter 8, it says, those whom he foreknew, he also uh, called, and those, uh, for those whom he predestined, he is also, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, those he predestined, he is also called, those he's called, he's also justified, those he justified, he has also glorified. 
A lot of people think that this is talking about going to heaven, but this is not talking about going to heaven. I don't have time to unpack this because uh, I want to stay uh, uh, in line with uh, the overarching point that I want to make here. <clears throat> and it's focused more on justification than glorification. But glorification largely speaks with regards to 70 AD. 70 AD in the first century, at the destruction of the first temple and Jerusalem, which, by the way, <clears throat> is heaven and earth. Um, I know this is so difficult for Westerners to get. I understand. Um, but if you do any length of research in ancient Eastern world, the common first century Jew understood the temple to be heaven and Jerusalem to be earth. So that was the destruction of the first creation. And when that occurred, the new creation was consummated. And that was the glory that was to be revealed. I will leave it there. Uh, but that's what this is referring to. And, and so he says, And we boast in hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we boast that uh, we also glory in our sufferings. So there was, there was a, a particular amount of suffering, especially the apostles were to suffer. Um, uh, this is why in Colossians, Paul says, I still fill up the sufferings of Christ that are lacking in his body. In Revelation, when the souls of the martyrs were crying out from underneath the altar, they say, how long, O Lord, until you avenge us of our blood? And he says, wait still a little while uh, uh, for, until the, t uh, uh, the, the number of the martyrs are complete. So there is a specific allotted time that the early church, especially the apostles being pioneers and forerunners, and, and captains uh, uh, who, who, who were to suffer the most. This is why Paul, uh, Paul says, death is at work in me, but life in you. Because not all the church suffered. I hope you know that. Um, he says, death is at work in me, but life in you. So there was a specific amount of suffering that the early church, especially the apostles, were to suffer uh, uh, before the coming glory. Now, the coming glory in 70 AD was when the, the Roman army besieged Jerusalem and they slaughtered one million Jews who were unbelieving. However, the early church fled from Judea to the mountains as was prophesied in Matthew 24. He says, and when you see all these things, he says, look up for you know your salvation draws nigh. He wasn't speaking about salvation from hell. He was speaking about salvation from the coming judgment that Jesus prophesied would come upon first century unbelieving Jerusalem, old covenant Israel. He says, all the blood from righteous Abel to righteous Zechariah shall be required at this generation. The generation we know in Hebrews and Exodus and Psalms is 40 years. 
So the time in which Jesus said that, and so the time it occurred was a, a couple years shy of 40 years. So Jesus didn't lie. Um, so anyways, the Christian church, they fled to the mountains and they were spared of the judgment. And unbelieving Jerusalem were destroyed by the Roman army. So, anyways, there was a specific time, amount of suffering before the Lord delivered them from the hands of their enemies. And that was the coming glory. Um, and there's so much more that can be said about that, but I will leave it there. Um... But he says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Um, I'm not going to focus so much on that aspect. Um, but verse 6, you see, at, uh, and we're coming to a close here. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, wh why does he say that we were powerless? In the law, uh, in Hebrews, in Hebrews, it says that the law made nothing perfect. Um, the, the Bible also says that the law was weakened through the flesh. So, in other words, we were powerless because we were still under the law. Now, I don't know if you knew this, but Jew and Gentile are under the law, who are outside of Christ. And I want you to know this too also, that when Christ died and made atonement for your sin, he made atonement for the sins you committed under the first law. But when we sin as Christians now we don't sin under the law we sin under grace okay so that's an important distinction there and so th there's less excuse for why we should be sinning because we're no longer under the law we're under grace the grace that empowers us not to sin Uh, but continuing forward, we were powerless because we were under the law. And it says, just at the right time. What was the right time? I want you to quickly turn to Galatians. Uh, I believe it's Galatians chapter 4. Because be mindful of this. He says, we're powerless. But that powerlessness ended at the right time. Okay, keep in mind that very important term, time. Uh, <clears throat> Give me one second.
I can't recall exactly what chapter it is. Let me let me look it up. It's Galatians four, verse five. <clears throat> we'll start actually from um, verse one. What I am saying is that as a long as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees. Now the guardians there mentioning mentioned is the law. Some translation says tutors, right? Um, but guardians and trustees un, until the time set by his father. So there is a time. We were under the law. We're under guardians and tutors. And as long as we were under that guardian, we were powerless. He says, but we were set under that guardian until the time set by the father. Right? And what time was that? We'll see. Verse 3. So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. <laughs> I want you to know this. A lot of people misunderstand 2 Peter. And they think about the destruction of the elements. Quote unquote. Refers to earth, wind, and fire on earth. It's not what... It, the same Greek word here in Galatians. The same Greek word in, in 2 Peter. 2 Peter speaks of the destruction of the elements. Here in Galatians speaks about the elements. And we were under the elements and in context, he's referring to the law. And that's why in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, it says, That which is obsolete is ready to vanish away. In 70 AD, it vanished away when God destroyed the temple. He destroyed that Levitical priesthood. He destroyed everything associated with the Old Covenant. And that's what was implied by the destruction of the elements. But anyways... Um, it says, and when the set time uh, set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. So when the set time was fully come, he sent a, uh, a son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God made you also an heir. So go back to Romans. Uh, <clears throat> the the We were still powerless. But at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Galatians speaks about us being under the law. But at the right time set by the Father, God sent His Son to redeem those who uh, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. Amen? Does that make sense? So we were powerless by the law. It couldn't justify us. It couldn't sanctify us. And it couldn't empower us. It brought death. But like it says in 2 Corinthians, that which was glorious, although it brought death, how much more glorious shall a covenant that brings life? Amen. 
Hallelujah. We are partakers of the resurrection life of Jesus Christ by the Holy Ghost. So we should not be downtrodden, defeated, uh, 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 you know, so on and so forth. <clears throat> Verse 7, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. So Paul is mentioning what, what is typical of, uh, uh, of even a good person. Very rarely will they die for someone. Unless it's their child. Right? Or wife. Very rarely. So that just shows the, the magnitude of love for one who is willing to die. But what does the Bible say? But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. That's the love of a righteous person. It's a great love. It says no greater love has a man than this that he would lay down his life for a friend. There's no greater love among men that they would die for a friend. But says God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. <clears throat> Amen. So it, it, it's a love that isn't just sentimental or, or stays as pity or stays as mere inactive compassion. There is activity and demonstration to the love of God. Turn real quickly, and I know you guys know this passage. It's John 3.16. <clears throat> John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So in Romans chapter 5, Verse 8, it speaks about the love of God that is demonstrated. The same language is here given in John chapter 3, verse 16. I know that in the English translation it says, For God so loved the world. When I was first reading the Bible, I thought of the word so there uh, to, to describe this large, 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 large love. Like God so, 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 so loved the world. You know, um, but when you look in the Greek, it's the word hutos. It says hutos gar agape sin hathas tan kosmon. Hutos means in this manner or in this way God loved the world. So in this manner, through this demonstration, God loved the world. Through what? What was the demonstration? It was the act of giving of his own son as a sin offering to atone for the sin of the world. Amen? Or I'll allow, I'll allow the rocks to cry out on that one. The, the dead praise not God. 
That's, that's a verse, by the way. Um, look, look at look at Isaiah chapter fifty-three. I just want us to give us. Uh, I want to give a description to what what the the sufferings of Christ entails. <clears throat> Isaiah fifty-three verse three. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. <clears throat> He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. <clears throat> Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. By the way, Matthew records this, but he words a little bit differently. He says he took up our infirmities and healed all of our diseases. Um, and that uh, uh, Matthew, it might be Mark, but it says thus the scripture was fulfilled. That says he has took up our infirmities and healed all of our diseases. You know what the context context meant? It meant uh, deliverance from demons, because Jesus cast out a demon from someone. Do you think uh, a, a Jew would have got that from this here text? No. This is why we need the Holy Ghost to help us to interpret the scriptures because the Jew reads this and what do they conclude? They try to rationalize it and say, oh, uh, uh, this represents the body of Israel and that somehow uh, uh, it, it will suffer immensely and it, it uh, will atone for the sin of the world. Uh, that's what they. That, that's how they try to maneuver out of, of it being fulfilled in Christ. Um but anyways, um, it says, Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, like it says in Romans 5, what? Peace comes through our Lord Jesus Christ. The punishment, the punishment that was upon his shoulders for our iniquities, for which he was crushed for, brought us peace and by his wounds we are healed amen verse 10 says yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer and though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered, he will see the light of life, this speaks of the resurrection, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. You see how in Romans chapter 5 it speaks of justification, therefore having been justified by faith, by faith in what? The gospel. And the gospel is the message that gives us the knowledge of God. Here it says that by knowledge of that righteous servant, it will justify many. So it's our knowledge is it's our knowledge of Christ and the message and and His message and what He has come to do is what justifies us. It's faith in Him. Amen. Now coming to a close. Let's look at verse 9. Uh, we'll, we'll stop at verse 10. <clears throat> Since we have now been justified by his blood, 
How much more shall we be saved from the um, from God's wrath through Him? But quickly, I just want to turn to Leviticus chapter seventeen, verse eleven. I hope this is okay. See, I, I reference a lot of scriptures. You want to know why? Because I want you to understand the Bible. Um, I don't. I don't want to just come with a topical message. Um, hello everybody, hello church, I want to introduce to you all uh, our sermon series for this week. We're going to be speaking on marriage. Uh, now, if you turn to your pamphlet, or your handout that the church gave you, you will notice on this nicely constructed piece of paper, isn't that how a lot of the the evangelical churches preach today? I don't want your pamphlet. I don't want a topical message. I want what the scriptures tell me. I know that offends people, but I really don't care. You know why? Because stuff like that keeps people dwarfed. You know why? Because what they do is they take one verse, they springboard from it into all that they want you to know. They want to cast their vision to you. I don't want your sermon series. What is the Holy Ghost saying through this text? Are you offended by that? Right? <clears throat> I hope not because that's not how Jesus preached. You know what he did? He opened up the scroll. In Luke 4, and he read Isaiah. He says, For the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel, uh, 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 to, to proclaim the, the year of Jubilee to the captives, and set at, at liberty those who are taking bondage, and, and to uh, mend the broken heart. He expounded the text. That's what, that's what he did. You, you know no single apostle... And Jesus himself included ever prepared a sermon. If you have to prepare a sermon, you're unprepared. You know why? Because topical messages, prepared sermons are a restraint on the prophetic. It's a restraint. I've been preaching 12 years now. I know because I've tried that whole gimmick. Because that's what I was told. Oh, prepare a sermon. You know, go into, you know, no. Be, and I've learned that the times I did that, it put a restraint upon what the Holy Ghost wanted to lead me to say. Go left here, go right there, touch that, do this. And that's why it doesn't seem so well constructed is because that sort of a framework is what puts a bridle on the mouth of God. See, because you can read a scripture and God still not speak. It's possible. <clears throat> but anyways, uh, look at uh, Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Did you know 
that atonement wasn't fully made when Jesus died on the cross? Did you know that? People don't understand that. Um, Hold on. Let me show you real quick. Give me one second. I wish I had all these verses memorized. Look at Hebrews chapter Hebrews chapter 9 verse 12 uh, it says well I'll read at verse 11 but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here or already uh, are are, are to come uh, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Uh, so, when Christ, when Christ died, see, look, the blood needs to be offered on an altar, right? The blood, when the when we read in uh, the law, the the blood was to be put upon the altar. Okay, now where did Christ put his blood? Where was the altar when Christ died? The altar is in heaven. So when Christ died and and, and he 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 entered well, he exited this life and he needed to put the blood on the altar. And and the reason why we know that there's an altar in heaven, and the Bible says in Hebrews uh, chapter 13, it says, For we have an altar that those who serve in the earthly tabernacle have no right to eat from. 
But we know that the, the writer of Hebrews didn't speak of an actual physical altar because there's no, there's no uh, um, practice of giving attendance to a physical altar in the new covenant. This is speaking about an altar in heaven. Um, but nonetheless, that's, that's what Jesus did. Now, um, now also, I, I would interest you to know, and I'm going to say this on the side, I'm not going to give too much time to it. The atonement wasn't consummated and complete until Jesus returned. Because when the high priest made atonement for the sins of Israel that was done once a year, <clears throat> atonement wasn't consummated until the priest came back and blessed the people and forgave their sin. Did you know that? So Jesus Christ, having served as high priest, right, he makes atonement, puts the blood on the altar, and that atonement is consummated at his coming. Y'all following? I, I, I suspect some of us are confused. Um, I'm not hearing some feedback from the rest of you. Some of you have been silent. Are you confused? <clears throat> um, I know that these things, oh, the, the rest of you, uh, I guess your fingers don't work. <laughs> Okay. Um, I know that some of this stuff is foreign to us, and that's because you want to know why? Is because people don't read the Old Testament, and so they don't understand uh, um, that they don't understand. See, there are certain things that these priests did. There are certain things the high priest did. So when we read in Hebrews and we read high priest and we read priest, we read altar, the vast majority of uh, believers, and I'll say this to be insulting, don't even understand what they had to do. They don't know the job description. They don't know what the priest did. That you know, uh, If you say turn to Leviticus or Leviticus, that's a book, <laughs> right? A again, I'm not being insulting, but... Um, that's that's what uh, uh, the priest would do. He would enter into the Holy of Holies. You know, he would make atonement, you know, put the blood on the altar. And he would appear before God. And then he would return back to the people who couldn't enter in with him. And he would bless the people and their sins would be forgiven. Because the high priest was a representative of God on earth to people and a representative of the people to God in heaven. And so when he went into the Holy of Holies, right, you know, he, he, he performed duty for men. 
to God. And then when he came back, he performed a duty for God to men to, their, to thereby bless them. And this is what's speaking about, you know, the Bible also speaks about priestly blessings, that the priests were to say to the people, uh, 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 may the Lord's face shine upon you and, and, and uh, keep you. And uh, I forgot where that's at exactly, but the priests were to bless the people. Yes, he was a mediator between God and men. Um, so the point, though, and, and I understand that this is controversial, um, but it shouldn't be. But um, I, I, and maybe I can talk about this another day, but I, I believe Jesus returned a second time um, in in the first century. And, and I know not everybody believes that, um, but um, so when he returned, that's what consummated the atonement. Um, and if you look at Matthew chapter 16, if you look at Matthew 24, uh, Jesus said in Matthew, um, Mark chapter 14, verse 60 through 63, he says to the high priest, he says, you will see the son of man coming on the clouds. Uh, he says in Matthew chapter 16, he says, I assure you that some of you will not taste death. He says, some of you standing here, he says it verbatim will not taste death until you see the Son of Man come out of the clouds. Matthew 24, verse 34, he says, This generation shall not pass away until all of these things take place. We could talk about that another day, but I'll put that on the shelf for now. But the point, though, is this. This is the main focus that I want to I make. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, again, For the life of a creature is in the blood, so we see that life is in the blood, right? So that because the law, when we sin, it, it, it requires our death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, right? So the, the sheep was to be offered because life was in the blood of the sheep, Right? And it says that I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Right? So now go back to Romans chapter 5. Um, Romans chapter 5. Since we have now, verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So the blood of Jesus Christ saves you from the wrath of God. There is life in the blood of Christ. It says uh, in Hebrews that the uh, how much more shall the blood uh, 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 of Christ that was offered through the eternal spirit, right, save you. Not of blood of bulls and goats, but blood of the spotless Lamb of God. So we're saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were God's enemies, so there was a time in which we were God's enemies, we're reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Amen? So we are saved from the wrath of the Lord. Hallelujah. 
through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I will close, I have, you have my word on this, with the last verse. Because I want to I want to show us um, I, I want to I want us to be immensely grateful for uh, from what God has saved us from. God essentially saved us from Himself. Um, <clears throat> Isaiah chapter sixty three. Look at the fierce anger of the Lord. This is the fierce anger of the Lord. And it's this anger and fierce wrath of the Almighty that God through Christ has saved us from because of His immense love. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered on my garments. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. It was for me the day of vengeance, the year for me to redeem had come. Um, And then verse 6, it says, I trampled the nations in my anger and wrath. I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. So you see the Lord <clears throat> in the day of vengeance spares not. It says the fierce wrath of the Lord who can stand? Who can withstand? Who can stand on that day? And yet we read in Isaiah 53 that it was that same wrath that Jesus endured for you and I. So that we are no longer the enemies of God. God no longer is against us. He no longer stands, uh, withstands us. He no longer stands against us. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 verses 9 through 8, How much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God through Him? Amen. It didn't barely save us. And so now God's, relation toward you and your relation toward God is that of benevolence that of 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 tender blessings and and grace and favor amen there's life in the blood and Jesus offered his life he offered his blood that you and I uh, may be forgiven. And more than forgiven, that we would be reconciled to the Father. We are in right standing with God. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. We have favor with God. Amen. So, In conclusion, that should lead us to be encouraged, right? To live with hope, 
to live with purpose, knowing that if God is for us, as it says in Romans 8, who can be against us? doesn't mean that there won't be people against us. It just means comparative to God and all that he is. How is there really a comparison? <clears throat> so with that said, I, I want to close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, I just thank you right now. And I pray, God, that you would uh, administer your loving kindness towards your people. In fact, right now, I just want you to begin to confess your sins. I want you to begin to uh, 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 bring them before the Lord. It says, whosoever conceals their sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes their sin shall obtain mercy. So we want to plead the mercies of the Lord. We want to, to plead for the blood of Christ this day. If we have committed any sin against him, <clears throat> have committed treason, <clears throat> have transgressed against his law, against his covenant. Uh, Father, right now, we just uh, place a demand on heaven. God, I ask right now, your word says that uh, that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, right now, I pray that you would forgive them of al uh, alcoholism, that you'd forgive them, Lord God, of, of backbiting, that you'd forgive them, Lord God, of unjust anger, that you'd forgive them of rage, Lord, that you'd forgive them of any fornication. Father, I pray right now that there would be repentance in the heart of your people. In Jesus' name, would you look upon the contrite and the humble and lift them up. Your word has promised us that those who humble themselves before the Lord, under your mighty hand, in due time you shall raise up. So, Father, forgive their sin. May the blood of Jesus Christ be appropriated and applied to your life, to your spirit, to your soul, to your mind, to your body, and cleanse you from all filth, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and create in you a clean heart and renew a right spirit. Father, right now I pray, Affirm your love to them by the Holy Ghost and cleanse them from a guilty uh, and stained conscience that they may be righteousness conscious, Lord. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, amen and amen. <clears throat>